Good morning, everybody. You know what I say? Barbara Streisand can still work her way into songs at this point in her career. You go, girl. Way to make it happen. Seriously, I hear she's going back out on tour again shortly, which she always says she'll never do again, but always seems to find a way. So I don't know if there are a lot of Babs fans here, but it could be a good year for you. What? Never say never, never, right? Okay. Uh, Good morning. I'm Brad. If we haven't met, I'm the senior pastor here. I would love to meet you. If you'll notice in your bulletin, it says, if you ever want to get coffee with me, that you can, and that's actually true. So if you'd ever like to sit down and chat about anything or just find out about the church or me or talk about how good the Chicago Cubs are, I'm always welcome. (laughs) I'm always happy to meet for coffee. Just email me. My information is in the bulletin. Um, I'd like to start today's talk with a little acknowledgement and hopefully maybe a little expressed humility. I don't know if you know this, but uh, there's sometimes a not-so-cordial debate in the blogosphere, go figure, right, about who is responsible for the environmental challenges that we face today. Who's to blame for air pollution, the loss of species, contaminating drinking water, climate change, things like that. And more than a few articles that I've read uh, pointed the finger directly at the teachings of Christian scripture as an example of the type of thinking that's led us to many of these problems. In 1967, Lynn White Jr. wrote a highly influential article expressing this point of view. It was entitled, The Historical Roots of Our Ecologic Crisis. Now, if you haven't heard of this article, you've heard the ideas that came out of it. In fact, I read a blog just last week that was referencing this article from 1967. And in the article, White argues that the roots of our uh, disregard for nature in the West can be traced back to the influence of Christianity, which he understood to insist that, quote, that it is God's will that man exploit nature for his proper ends. And the articles that I read also pointed to somewhat famous incidents of Christians who've made this argument to justify environmental losses. So, for example, last week I mentioned an article entitled Ours is the Earth, written by James Watt, uh, in, um, that where, he, where he said this, quote, merely, the earth is merely a temporary way station on the road to eternal life. The earth was put here by the Lord for his people to subdue and to use for profitable purposes on their way to the hereafter. So we're leaving anyway. You might as well use it for all that we can, right? But the question I want us to consider today is whether or not this is what the authors of the Bible were encouraging. And if this is what they were teaching the role of humanity is in the world. Now, last week, we said that the world is actually not ours, and we looked at God's perspective and how he feels about creation. And this week, we're going to examine how the Christian scriptures talk about uh, humanity's role in creation. And I think what we're going to find is that the scriptures teach that we're not created to use the earth, but that we have a calling, a commission, and an opportunity to experience a God-given full life through caring for creation. Now, a little disclaimer here. I'm going to use the term creation. When I use the term creation, I'm not using that to set up uh, any point of view against any other point of view. 
Uh, I'm not saying that uh, we're going to use this point of view, for example, as opposed to the common narrative of today's science. Not interested in that at all. I don't know where you're coming from or what you think about how the world came to be. Um, You might be a very traditional literalist when you read the scriptures, have grown up in a a traditional background. That's fine. You're going to get a lot out of today's talk. You may be someone who sees God working through evolution, um, and that's the mechanism you see God creating everything through. There's lots of room for you today. Everyone's going to fit in here. You may not necessarily believe in a God at all. So when we use the term creation today, that's just reflecting an underlying um, presupposition or point of view that you might expect because we're a church that we do believe in a creator who created all things. But how that happened, we're not debating, all right? We're just saying we have this understanding and we're trying to look from a, 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 a God-centered, Jesus-centered point of view at these things, but not setting ourselves up against any other point of view about how things happen. Does that make sense? That's a great conversation to have, and maybe we should all go out for coffee and talk about the different points of view. This is about something else. So there's room for everybody uh, in this uh, conversation, in this talk today. So let's look at the, our, our, one of our key scriptures today. This is from the very first book of the Bible. This is the creation story, and here's uh, part of how that process is described. So in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, in this passage, I think you could probably see a lot of things, but today we're going to look at three particularly important ideas that I think lay a foundation for how the authors of Scripture describe humanity's role in creation. I think we see a calling, I think we see a commission, and we can see an opportunity. The first are calling. Now, it seems that this passage has a lot to say about humanity and our relationship to creation. And if there's one thing that stands out, there's a refrain. Three times it mentions in three verses that humanity is created in God's image. Probably the biggest theme above any else in this passage is that. There's a lot of significance to that. Now, when these scriptures were written, it was the common practice of kings to take an image of themselves and place it throughout their kingdom to show who was in charge and whose kingdom it was. A theologian, Christopher Wright, uh, points it out this way. He says, uh, emperors would, quote, set up an image of themselves in far-flung corners of their domains to signify their sovereignty over that territory and its people. Similarly, God installs human species as the image within creation of the authority that finally belongs to God, creator and owner of the earth. So to have the image of the celestial king is to be his image throughout creation, to represent him, to speak of who he is. But that's not all. In that time, uh, it was very common to have an image of your God in your home or at a place of worship. 
Now, it wasn't that the people that day thought that God was actually in the image, but it's more like those images, those idols were a focus for the God to express itself, to exert its power, to manifest its presence. Now, the God of the Bible does something completely different that was totally out of the box for the way that religion worked in that day and age, in that he refused. One of his commandments was, you shall not make a graven image. You shall not build uh, an idol that represents me because no one can capture in something that is made by your hands who I am. Instead, what image did he give? We're made in the image of God, cast by God's own hand. We're the sign to the rest of the world that God exists. So what we see in this passage is God creating humanity, but creating us with calling. And humanity is called to represent God in the world. We're it. We're his image. We're his image that he sends out and says, go into all of the earth and represent me. And just as kings would send their images to the farthest parts of their kingdoms, just like other ancient gods were supposed to exert themselves through uh, graven images, God creates and sends humanity to the ends of the earth to exert his power and presence and purpose throughout creation. You see what's happening here? We read these stories in Genesis. It's helpful to put them next to the stories of the other ancient peoples of the day to understand the significant differences that we see in who God is and who he's created us to be. Now, you might wonder at this point, how exactly do we do this? How do we represent who God is? And certainly, I think there are a lot of ways. I think every single interaction you have with people is an opportunity to do this. The way you treat your boss, the way you treat uh, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your neighbor, your children, your employees, it's an opportunity to reflect the image of God. But it's not just with human interactions that we have this opportunity. In fact, if we look at this passage, we'll see that God gives humanity ways, specific ways to exert his power and his presence. He gives them jobs. We have a commission. Humanity from the beginning of time, as told in the Christian and Hebrew scriptures, we have a, a commission. And in this passage, we can see two jobs, two commissions. Uh, one is here. It says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So the job we see here is to increase. Increase in number and rule over creation. Now, the increase bit is, is cool and it's important, but it, God gives that commission to every living thing. So when he creates um, other creatures, he tells them, be fruitful and increase in numbers. So if you read the whole story, you'll see that refrain as well. The one thing that's unique to humanity is this rule over creation thing. Now you might hear that term rule over, hmm. And you might think, well, there you go. There it is. That's black and white rule over. Lynn White was right. Christianity teaches that we can do what we want with the earth's resources. It's all about us, what we want. We're the rulers. So it belongs to us. We can do what we will. Take that, polar bears. So sad. Too bad. But not so fast. I think one of the problems we have is when we hear the word rule, we hear it with certain connotations, right? 
We live in a democratic society. We don't have a king anymore. And so every image I think that we have with ruling tends to be negative. And if you look at the examples of the last century in terms of who were absolute rulers and what do we think about them, who do we think of? Joseph Stalin, Idi Amin, Hitler. Those are the images that come to mind when we think about ruling. But when God says to the first human, subdue and rule, is this what he has in mind? And it seems that just a quick look at Scripture paints a very different picture of what God expects out of rulers. For example, later in Scripture, when God explains what a king will do, that he will bless. So this is the type of king that God will bless. He writes this in Deuteronomy. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, Or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you're not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Must not. God's idea of kingship and ruling was not selfishness or self-servedness. He had another idea. And Jesus, I think, articulates this very clearly in one of his teachings. In Matthew 20, he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus not only taught this, but he modeled it. He lived it out, serving humanity in the most profound way that you could ever imagine. Even taking the sins of the world onto his back, to his own death, as the most amazing act of service that I think has ever been pictured or imagined. And he did this for the people that he would rule. This, this is the picture of authority and ruling that God is prescribing. Servant leadership. God is commissioning humanity to rule in the way that he would rule, in the way that we see Jesus ruling. You see the difference? So our connotations of what it means to rule aren't the same as what God expects out of rulers. It's two completely different things. So when we read rule, we read oppress, we read dominate, we read use to your own ends. When God talks about ruling, he means Jesus. Sacrifice. Serving. Putting others ahead of yourself. That's what rule over means in this passage. Job number two, Genesis chapter two. It says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now described here is job number two, which is to work and take care of the garden. 
Now, the word translated as work here is the Hebrew word abad. It can also mean or be translated as, surprise, serve. And in the scriptures, it's also used as a worship word directed directly to God. Serving as worship to God, worshiping God through service. The word translated as take care is the Hebrew word samar. It can also be translated as guard or protect. You see what the, the picture that's developing here? For sure, God is telling humanity to work the garden, to develop it. There's nothing wrong with taking resources and making beautiful things out of them. It's part of the creative nature of being made in God's image. God was creative. He created things, is creative, continues to create. That's part of who you are. You're meant to create. You're meant to take what's around you and make something beautiful out of it that didn't exist before. But he's telling us, he's telling them to do it in a way that serves and protects creation. And that's all worship to him. So humanity has a commission, but our commission is to worship God by serving, developing, and protecting creation. And this, I think, makes sense with our calling to represent God to all of creation. If we're creatures made in the image of God, shouldn't we then reflect his qualities of servant leadership as we carry out his mandate to rule and work the earth? Christopher Wright put it this way, he says, Whatever way this human dominion is to be exercised, it must reflect the character and values of God's own kingship. Yeah? And it seems to me that Lynn White, probably with the best of intentions, just grossly misunderstood the message of the first chapter of Genesis. Probably because he had some bad examples that served as his way and his lens to interpret that scripture. But God was not giving humanity the mandate to exploit and pillage the earth to our own quote-unquote proper ends. Just the opposite. He was giving us a calling and a job, the vocation of serving and protecting the environment in a way that reflects who he is, that shows the world that he's alive, that he truly exists. We're that representation. We show his generosity, his creativity, his intensity, his care. And I think when we deny this calling or ignore this commission to care for the earth, It stands to reason that we actually miss something very important about what it is to be human. What it is to be alive. Our souls suffer. If there's anything to this story, one of the things that exists is that there's a part of you that is designed certainly to care for the people around you, but to care for the earth around you. And when we become disconnected from that, we become disconnected from something, a part of the image of God. We become less human. There's an opportunity here. So if you keep reading the story of where humanity is created and given our early calling and commission, in the third chapter, we read the story of how humanity turns away from God. And one of the results is that decay and death enter the world. So verse 17 of that third chapter says, Cursed is the ground because of you, humanity. 
And what we get from this is that our sense of creation's value was damaged. And instead, we became the agents of creation's curse. So instead of protecting, serving creation, humanity has all too often just used the earth as it suited us, not realizing that as we do, we lose an essential part of who we are. And our quality of life suffers. Not just because of polluted air, not just because of pilfered landscapes, but because our souls are injured. I like the way Van Dyke puts it. He wrote a book you can see in your bulletin. It's really helpful in this series. He says, we all long to participate in that value again, to be needed and noticed by creation. Needed and noticed. You see, according to, I think, the scriptures we've examined today, creation care, caring for the environment, is not just this peripheral issue to get around to when all the important stuff is really taken care of. Instead, creation care is essential to understanding and participating in what it means to be a human being. And without it, we're missing. We're missing out on understanding part of the heart of God. We're missing out on part of our place in the world and the experience of how those two things work together. Creation care is an opportunity for all of us. Or another way to put this is caring for the earth is an opportunity to experience life as God has intended it and we long for it, whether we realize that's what we're longing for or not. It's not the whole thing, but it's significant and it's important. So with this in mind, I want to just give you a few ways that you can participate in this important calling and commission of humanity. So three implications. Van Dyke in his book gives us four. I'm just going to, I'm going to narrow it down to three. <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing that. Van Dyke's probably like, what? But that's what I'm doing. So I'm giving you three today. The first is knowledge. You know, in this case, ignorance is not bliss. A lot of times I think we have our, we can bury our heads in the sand. There's certain things we don't like to think of. When we're comfortable, we don't want to change the way we do things. But I think learning can be actually really encouraging. You know, um, as I'm prepping for this series, and you might even notice we had an ad in Grid Magazine this month's um, issue. If you haven't seen it, it's pretty cool, and it's a great magazine. But Grid's a great magazine to read because it, it, I learn things. I started reading it back when I, like six years ago when I did a series on the environment. I was like, oh, let me learn a little bit about this. And it's funny what you might pick up. So, for example, um, I've learned more than a few things over the years, but one thing that I noticed is that apparently, I didn't know this, this is going to be exciting for you, stormwater. You ever think about stormwater? You know what stormwater is? Stormwater is rain that comes down during storms. Deep, I know. Well, the thing is, it's actually a big problem in Philadelphia and a lot of urban settings because in the city here, we have a lot of sidewalks and roads and buildings, and there's not always as much exposed uh, green space or space that can absorb the water. So when it rains a lot, the water comes right down, bounces off the hard surfaces and goes into the sewers and right into the rivers and streams. Now, that doesn't sound so bad, except normally water goes into the ground, and a lot of the pollutants that can be found in the water are filtered out 
through the dirt and sand. So by the time it gets to the streams and the rivers, it's cleaner. The same streams and rivers that we drink water out of. Are you following me now? So the problem is, if it just bounces, doesn't get absorbed, and goes right down in there, everything that's in it, all the runoff from just bouncing on streets and, and buildings and stuff comes with it. And it goes right into the water where our fish swim and we drink. So it's a problem. So apparently, for free, you can get a rain barrel. And someone will come for free to your house and hook it up to whatever drain spouts you have, and you can collect rainwater so it doesn't immediately hit the sidewalk and go right into the drain, and all those pollutants have a chance to filter out before they do. Do you know that? Isn't that kind of cool? And in fact, I think for a small fee, you can get these cool planters that look really cool, and you can grow plants in it. And so then what this means is you have this whole barrel full of water that when you want to water your plants or wash your car or something like that, you don't have to turn on your spigot. You can save a little money. You can use it. And at the same time, uh, you saved it from just rushing right into, um, into the sewers. You can, even if you don't want to use it, you can just wait till a day when it's not raining and release the water so it has a chance to filter through the ground. Isn't that kind of cool? So I found out, and I think I'm going to do this because we're redoing our deck, or well, we don't have a deck. We're going to build a little deck in our back, or we're going to try. This is a great time to get this rainwater in the back, and we can use it to water any plants we have there, stuff like that. All that is to say, I would have never known that if I just didn't read a magazine article. And you know what? I don't feel worse about that. I feel better. I don't feel guilty. Oh, man. Look at me. I've had a house and no water barrel. What a jerk. I think, no. Hey, I can get a water barrel for free. And they'll come set it up for me. All right. And I can do a small thing to help our rivers and streams be a little bit cleaner. And there's actually a lot of things that we can do in the city to care for our environment. We're going to talk about that next week. So we can learn. Knowledge is good. Second, sacrifice. This is a fun one, isn't it? This is where the rubber hits the road. You know, the model we have is this. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sacrifice. To rule in the image of God, we have to be willing to sacrifice to serve and protect creation. Now, most of the sacrifices we make are small. They're minor inconveniences. So, I know there are a few fans of this in the house today. You can take SEPTA. Walk or ride your bike instead of driving to work. That's a simple thing that you can do. We live in a great city. Not every city has the systems that we do. A second, you can use re- uh, reusable sources instead of consuming resources by, like, bringing a cloth bag to the grocery store instead of using new paper or plastic bags, carrying a water bottle instead of purchasing a water bottle that you'll soon throw away. Like small little things like that, barely an inconvenience. Some things can buy a little bit more. You may choose to get a fuel-efficient car when what you really want is that gas-guzzling muscle car, and I feel you. But you can make a small difference that way. Uh, You may choose environmentally sustainable products to remodel your home or your house, even though at this point they might be a little bit more expensive. And you might have to go without something else that you'd really like to do because of that. Whatever the case, though, it's important to remember that worship and creation care is an act of worship always entails some sort of sacrifice. And so it stands to reason that if we're going to worship God by caring for creation, at times we're going to have to sacrifice to do it. But what I want to do is let's start with some easy ones. Let's not even the low-hanging fruit. Let's like someone throw like the Red's Apple Ale commercials. Someone's hitting you in the head with an apple. That type of fruit, low-hanging fruit hitting you in the face, easy to do. So 
in your bulletin, there's a list of 10 things you can do. Devin Sioma put this together. She researched them. Simple, easy, sometimes fun things that you can do. The rainwater thing is in there. There's a link you can, or a stormwater thing. You can do that. Um, we're going to have uh, our friends and partners from Philly Foodworks here next week talking about how uh, partnering with the CSA can make a difference. Um, and also, they're going to take uh, $15 of every um, uh, subscription that people make and joining the CSA, and they're going to give it back to a ministry of the church, which is kind of a cool thing as well. Um, so it's good to have friends and partners. But this summer, you've got a list of 10. Why don't you try three of those? Is that too high a number? Three sounds like a... Sometimes to me, three sounds like, oh, just three. And sometimes like, whoa, three? Try three of them. See what happens. I'm going to try that stormwater. That's one that I'm choosing. But I want to pick two more and try them this summer. Small ways to connect to who you were made to be. It's a bigger question than even just our own survival. That's a big one. But just connecting to the person that God's made you to be. We live in a city. Sometimes it's hard to connect to nature, like when I was visiting, or as compared to visiting my sister in Durango, Colorado. But we can make a big difference here. And we're going to talk about that week. I'll talk about that next week. And the third thing that we can do is redeem creation. But to hear about that, you have to come back next week. So next we're going to talk about living in the city and redeeming creation. All right, so just to recap, we have a great opportunity to experience good life as we're created to experience it by embracing our call to worship God by serving and protecting creation. Amen.